now to the Gospel of John, chapter 1, as we begin the Gospel of John. Wednesday nights, what's different about Wednesday nights, what is our heart on Wednesday night, is to go through the Bible uh, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And so we're journeying through, we just finished Luke, now we'll begin John, and then after John go into Acts and so forth. And I do really feel that this is the backbone and the heart of our church, is to come and study verse by verse and line by line. And I know it's a long endeavor, but if the Lord continues to give us time and he tarries, we will get to the book of Revelation. And what a treat for all of us uh, to be able to say you've studied through the Bible chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And also, it provides a model for us of what to do in our quiet time. You know, how do I read God's Word? And you want to read it book by book and chapter by chapter and let the text uh, speak to you. And I'm especially excited to begin the Gospel of John. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the teaching of His Word. Father, we do thank you for your Word. We tremble before your Word. And we just want to acknowledge that we don't have it together. Lord, would you grant us a broken and contrite heart, a teachable spirit to be poor in spirit before you. We never want to get tired of reading and studying about you, Jesus. That you would love us so much that you would lay down your life for us. Father, that you would send the Son. Father, I'm asking that you would just do a great work in our hearts tonight and through the teaching of the Gospel of John and through Wednesday night study. God, would you heal marriages? Lord, you know those marriages that need that supernatural touch from you. Would you strengthen marriages? God, would you encourage uh, the singles in our fellowship? Lord, would you just minister to their hearts right where they're at? Father, would you provide jobs? Lord, if you desire to bring healing, Lord, the healing of the heart where there's been abuse and abandonment and rejection. God, if you want to bring physical healing for your glory. But we come before you not based on who we are, but because of your love for us. And we pray for your will and all of the plans that you have for our lives. In a good sense, Lord, we pray that you would just grant those things to us. Lord, bring it on and and everything that's in your heart and and in your mind. So would you bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of John is different from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three Gospels are what we call synoptic Gospels, meaning that they go in a chronological order, event by event, through the life of Jesus Christ. John is completely different. He doesn't go in a chronological order. And if you notice, there's a lot of events that are missing in the Gospel of John, if you've read through it before. We don't have his baptism. We don't have much of the infant birth of Christ. We don't have the genealogy. And the list goes on and on. In fact... There's only seven signs, seven miracles that John focuses on. That's a hard task to do. Could you imagine you're with Christ and you're following Christ for these three years and you see all of it, experience all of it, and then you're going to sum it up with just seven miracles. And also he focuses on seven I am statements of Christ. If you remember in the Old Testament with Moses, as he was at the burning bush, he asked for the name of God and God said what? I am that I am. And Jesus now, God in human flesh, fills in the blank. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. So as we go through over the next several months this study, 
We'll be pointing out the signs, the miracles, the seven miracles, as well as the seven I am statements. We will be going at a little bit faster pace than on Sunday mornings. We'll be shooting for about a chapter a week because it is a through the Bible study. I would like to finish before I'm 50, you know, and so... Uh, we will go at a little bit faster pace, Lord willing. You'll notice in the Gospel of John, we don't have in the introduction that it's written by John. So how do we know that John is the human author that God used? It's by the internal evidence of the Gospel of John. John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And you look at all of the places that the disciple whom Jesus loved is, and it clearly points to John the Apostle. So we begin this great and glorious book in verse 1 of chapter 1. In beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word. And this takes us back to Genesis 1.1, doesn't it? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Nowhere in Scripture do we have this explanation about the beginning of the origins of God. What we have is that God has always been. He's eternal in his existence. He has no beginning point. He has no ending point. He has no creator. If God had a creator, then he would be less than that creator. So God is supreme. He is, he's all. So he's always been. So here we find in the beginning was the word. It's the eternal pre-existence of Jesus Christ. That's just kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? I mean, we say that so quickly, so flippantly, but God's always been. When he created the world, he was already in existence. He always will be. He's the Alpha and the Omega. Coming into church Sunday morning, I was talking with a lady in our fellowship, uh, and we were talking just briefly about time and thinking about time from God's perspective. I mean, it's hard to, to imagine. I'm in such a hurry And God's like, hey, I got all of this under control. So in the beginning was the word. And we're introduced to this title, this title of Christ. It's logos in the Greek, if you you look it up. And this was an important word, logos, to the Greeks and to the Jews. It was this philosophy that was the foundation of life, that that behind everything was logos, the the word. But they really didn't know what logos was. But the Jews, their view of the logos was if there was a thought, there has to be a thinker. That makes sense, doesn't it? So not just this philosophy, this vague thing like the Greeks, but if we see this order and we see this thought, then there must be somebody that's thinking up those thoughts. But that's not a philosophy or an idea. Now it's identified for us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Here gives us a window into the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, because the Word is with God, but it goes on and says the Word was God. The word is a title that's given to Jesus Christ. So you're saying, well, what is the Trinity? It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three distinct, different persons, but yet one God. And this, again, is mind-blowing to us. We've got the eternal pre-existence of God, but also the triune being of God. And we see a lot of different ways in creation where you'll find a three-in-one us being made in God's image. We have a body, don't we? We have a mind. We have a soul. There's three in one. But all of those illustrations at some point just break down and it's just flat out mind-blowing, isn't it? 
So here we have a window into the Trinity, that the Word, the Logos, was with God, with the Father. But also the Word was God. Now, if you have any questions about whether Jesus is God, if he claimed to be God, if the Scripture teaches that Jesus is God, this is a great proof text. And there's many false religions that will actually alter John chapter 1. I don't bring this up to pick on anybody, but the Jehovah's Witness, if they come to your door and they knock upon your door, ask them to show you John 1.1, and they'll have a different reading and interpretation of John 1. They've twisted it, they've changed it, and they've tried to take away the deity of Jesus Christ. They don't believe that Jesus is God. And is it important for us? Absolutely. Because if Jesus is not God, then you don't have perfection dying on the cross for you. So it's very important to understand what the scripture is saying and understanding John 1, that the logos, the word, the title that's given to Jesus, he's God. The word was God. So you have the written word, don't we? that we have in front of us, but we have the living word, Jesus Christ. Remember a few weeks ago at the end of Luke, we saw Jesus having this conversation after his resurrection, and he went through the Old Testament of where it spoke of him. It all points to Jesus Christ. It's all summed up in Jesus Christ. When we go to heaven, we're going to meet the living word explaining to us the written word. Isn't that going to be fun? When those go before us and enter into God's presence, they're experiencing that. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In creation, Genesis chapter 1, we find the Father speaking. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Each time he spoke, he spoke the word, and the word is who? Jesus. So Jesus is actively participating with the Father in creation. Also in Genesis 1, we see reference to the Spirit, the Spirit hovering over the water. So the Father spoke, and then Jesus created. Now that's some power, isn't it? We've been in a season of home projects, and man, that would be a blessing. Let there be a stained deck. Bam! There it is. And God in his power, he he didn't struggle in creation. And as you read Genesis 1 and you take it at face value, God took nothing and he spoke it into existence. And here it tells us that Jesus created all things. There was nothing that was made apart from him. In verse 4, in him, the word, in Jesus, was life and the life was the light of men. Just a gentle reminder to all of us, life is in Jesus Christ, amen? amen, and in him alone. And a lot of times, even as believers, we're looking for something. We're saying, hey, this is going to satisfy me. This is going to fulfill me if I could just get here or get there. If this situation was worked out and it's all empty and vanity, the only thing that can fulfill us is Christ. Life is in him. In verse 5, And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the light, and he shines into the darkness. Darkness doesn't comprehend it. We know why from John chapter 3, verse 19. It tells us that men love darkness rather than the light. That's why people don't want Christ in their life many times. Verse 6 puts an emphasis now on John the Baptist. So you have John the disciple who's talking about John the Baptist. Two different Johns. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I like that. He knew God's call. This was God working in his life. This man came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all through him might 
believe. John wasn't the light. John the Baptist wasn't the light. His job was to only point to the light. Be reminded of this. This is so encouraging and refreshing. Church, we're not the light. We're not the source. We're not the power. We're not the answer. We just get to bear witness to the light. We're beggars who have found bread. You with me? It's when you're a kid and you realize that the cookie jar has been filled. My mom had one of those brown owls. Do you remember? Anybody remember those? It's got the lid on it. And if you were the first one to discover that there was a fresh batch of chocolate chip cookies in there, go and tell your brother, your sister, hey, there's cookies in there. And that's the idea here. We're not the answer. John the Baptist isn't the answer. Jesus is the answer. We tell people about Christ. Verse 8, he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Jesus gives light to every person in every part of the planet. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And we'll meditate upon this more as we get into verse 14, but it shows the creation of God, the creation of Christ, and yet he came into the world, and the world didn't know him. The depths of the rejection that Christ went through to be the creator and to step into his creation, human flesh, and yet be rejected. Maybe you've reached out to someone, you've extended yourself to someone, and it's resulted in rejection. It hurts deeply. I don't care how old you are. You know, we tend to pretend as we get to be adults that it doesn't bother us, but it it still hurts. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. Whoever thought that up? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? I'll take sticks and stones before words, right? Sticks and stones tend to heal up a lot quicker than words. Words can cut deep for a lifetime. And here Christ, he's created everyone. He's breathed life into them. And he comes to them and they didn't know them. Verse 11, he came to his own and his own didn't receive him. Speaking of the nation of Israel, speaking of his own immediate family. But there are those who receive, and as many who has received him, verse 12, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. How do we become children of God? Is it by good works? Is it by fasting and prayer, reading through, through your Bible? Those are all wonderful things, but those things could never save us. The only thing that saves us is the sacrifice of Christ. And through receiving Christ... You're not just only forgiven, but you're given the greatest gift. You get to be the child of God, the daughter of God, the son of God. In verse 13, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of the man, but of God. I love this. Salvation is God's work. So it's, you're not being born through the natural process where a man and a woman decide to have a child. You're not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. God did a work in your life. He did a work in my life to bring us to Christ. Maybe you don't know Christ. And God's going to bring you to salvation tonight, this week, this month. It's the work of God in our lives to bring us to a place where we receive Christ. Now let's stop and think about verse 14 for a minute. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we've been introduced to the word. Eternal preexistence. The word was with God in the beginning. And the Word was God. So not only the eternal preexistence of the Word, but the deity of the Word. 
and also the power of the word to create all things. Nothing was made apart from Jesus. Now this, if you're reading this for the very first time, almost throws you for a curveball. The word became flesh. The word put on human flesh. So God humbled himself, not to have this ghostly appearance, but to actually become flesh. So Christ, as he was conceived in the womb of Mary, now this is John's version of what we find in the other Gospels. He sums up what the other Gospels give to us in paragraphs in one sentence. The word became flesh. The amazing, immaculate conception where Mary's a virgin and she becomes a child. So you have those early days of pregnancy for Jesus to where he's humbled to the point where he's microscopic. And as he begins to grow in, in the womb, you know, he's a few ounces and then gets to the place where maybe he's a pound or two pounds. Full term, Mary delivers Jesus Christ. Maybe he was a six pounder, seven pounds. Maybe he was a big man and he was eight pounds, you know. But God now has been put in human flesh where he's all God, but yet he's all man. Amazing. And the creator is dependent upon his creation. We know marriage historically at the time when Jesus was born is these gals would be young teens, 14, 15, 16 years old when they would get married. The creator of the universe is dependent upon a teenager to make sure he gets fed. I mean, that's the reality of this. This is long before formula or anything else. God is in this place where he has humbled himself. I try to think of analogies of this. And as we have a a young son, he's 12 months old. And if you've had children or have an infant, you relate to this. But they get to this age where you know that they're thinking so much and they're feeling so much but you can't communicate with them. They've got their baby language going on, and you understand some things, but you can't fully understand. So what if I could just, like, do this amazing teleportation type of thing, and for just a moment, I, too, could become a 12-month-old, and and I'm down there with them, and we could speak baby language together, and I poop our pants together and stuff. Just cause havoc for everybody around us, you know. He's got a little onesie on tonight that says boys rule, and I could get one of those too, you know, and just, I'm sure that we could connect in a greater way, right? But yet, I've been there before. I don't remember it, but I see pictures of it when I was 12 months old as well. So even though that would be a great step down, it's not to a place that I've never been before. And Isaiah 40 tells us that, that God reigns over all things and the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers compared to God. And that's just the, Isaiah the prophet giving us an illustration of God compared to us. So it would be like us becoming a grasshopper. It's like you getting to heaven and God going, I really love the grasshoppers. And you're like, well, I kind of pulled them apart. You know, the, <laughs> and I want you to go to the planet of grasshoppers and become a grasshopper so that they can know my love and die and suffer a humiliating death where they pull you apart, you know? No way, I'm not going to do that. And all of those illustrations don't even begin to come close of what Christ has done for us. And we don't want to minimize anything about Christ, his deity or the fact that he's creator of the universe, but also his humility that he would become 
flesh. Now, the scriptures tell us why he became flesh. He became flesh and he dwelt among us, to tabernacle among us, to live among us, and we beheld his glory. The reason that Jesus came is so that we could behold the glory of God. We sang about it tonight. The glory of Jesus, which is also the glory of the Father. We behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became a man, put on human flesh, so that we could be saved. So that we could know the glory of God, the love of God, in a deeper way. If we only had the revelation of God given to us in the Old Testament, we wouldn't know God near the way that we do. We are so blessed to live at the time after the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, to understand God in the way that we do, to behold the glory of God. We receive salvation, the glory of God, and also we have a high priest that can sympathize with our weakness. We go to our high priest and he knows what it is to wake up on a Monday morning and have to get up and go to work. He's done it. He's been there. He knows what the stomach flu feels like. And more importantly, he knows what temptation is like. So we behold his glory. And what is his glory full of? What is Jesus full of? Now, this is a convicting question. What are you full of tonight? (laughs) You know, what am I full of tonight? You don't want to know, right? But Jesus is full of grace and truth. Now, Please note this, what came first? The grace and then the truth. Now, grace is what? Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Mercy is not getting the judgment you deserve, which is wonderful. But grace is even more than mercy. It's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. The only reason that Christ would come is grace. Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. Now, we say we're into grace, but we really long for justice in the lives of others. But in our lives, a lot of times, too, we'll beat ourselves up and have a hard time embracing the grace of God. And Jesus came in the fullness of grace, and his gift of grace opened up the avenue of truth. I think if we want to adopt Christ's ministry... And impacting people's lives, we step forward with genuine, unconditional love full of grace. Unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor, which is difficult for us to do. And that grace will then present to us the opportunity to give truth. Only Jesus Christ can do this perfectly. Because sometimes people err too far on the side of grace. And then other times people err too far on the side of truth. They have a lot of great truth, but they have no grace. And so they're a porcupine and nobody wants to get too close to a porcupine. You with me? So it's the grace with the truth. Don't leave out the grace. Don't leave out the truth. But put the grace first. In verse 15, John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. John saying, This is the one that I was speaking of. He has existed for all eternity before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. The fullness of Christ that we've received, grace for grace. Now, what does that mean, grace for grace? It actually means grace upon grace, a super abundance of grace. Isn't that good news? I hope that that's our knowledge of God. 
and our knowledge of Jesus Christ is he gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We don't get saved by God's grace and then leave it and do our best after that and try to live out the Christian life on our good works. We come before the Lord continually relying upon his undeserved, unmerited favor. And God doesn't reject a broken and contrite spirit. He loves those prayers where, God, let's be honest. You're God. I'm not. I'm a dirt clod. I'm struggling here. I really need your help. Would you bless my marriage through your grace? Would you bless my kids through your grace? Would you give me favor at my job through your grace and help me to glorify you? And the Lord loves to answer those kind of prayers because it points to his glory. He gives grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was pointing us to Christ, was a schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ. If we didn't have the law, we would tend to say, God, why would you have to give your son? Just give me some rules. I can do the rules. But God gave us the rules first to show us our need for grace. So grace didn't come through Moses, but it came through Jesus. Jesus gives us the grace and the truth. God can be gracious to us because of the death of his son. Jesus takes the wrath of God for us. In verse 18, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. So Jesus is the expressed image of the father. If you want to know what the father's like, look at the life of Jesus Christ. Verse 19, now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? They've heard about this message of what John the Baptist is doing, all these people that are following John. So we've got to find out and give him the inquiry. He confessed and didn't deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They're wanting to know if John is the Messiah. And he very clearly says, I'm not the Christ. Now, gang, it's a freeing day in your life and in my life when we realize I am not Jesus. And you're like, no, duh. I know that for a long time, right? But sometimes when people are going through hardship in their lives, we try to play Jesus in their life and we try to be everything for them and fix all their problems and we can't. And John the Baptist very quickly says, I'm not the Christ. I'm not even gonna pretend to. I don't even wanna try to take that place in your life. Here at the church, we we offer free biblical counseling for for anybody that wants to come. Sometimes it takes a little bit of time to get an open appointment. But you'll find in those counseling sessions that it's really the heart of John the Baptist. Look, I'm not the Christ. I can't even begin to sort this out for you, but I can point you to Jesus. Jesus is the counselor that you're looking for. He's the one that you need. He can give you wisdom. And pointing people to Jesus, it's really freeing. Verse 21, and they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. These questions have background in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophecy of the prophet, which Jesus fulfilled. So they're asking, are you the prophet that Moses foretold? And then also in Malachi 4, verse 5, it said, Elijah would come before the wrath of God comes. And so that's the basis for those two questions. And John answers and says no. In verse 22, Then they said to him, Who are you, that we may give an answer 
to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? It's an interesting question. What do you say about yourself? Who are you? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make the way, make straight the way of the Lord. Quoting Isaiah 40, verse 3. He says, this is who I am. I'm the messenger that was foretold in Isaiah with this message to make straight the way of the Lord. Now that almost sounds confusing because God's way is straight, right? Jesus' way is straight. So what does it mean, make straight the way of the Lord? If you had a dignitary that was coming into a city, you would send out a workforce that would go to the road and make sure that the road was smooth for this coming dignitary. It might work in Colorado Springs too. Hey, president's coming, let's fill in all the potholes. You know, we don't want the president to go over any potholes. But that was the idea. Someone important's coming, so make the way straight. And John the Baptist told people, you need to repent because Jesus is coming. The Messiah is coming. Prepare your life to meet Jesus. In verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees, this group that had set themselves apart to try to fulfill the law. Pharisees means separated ones. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. John says the reason I'm baptizing is to prepare people for Jesus, to point them to the one who I'm not even worthy to take off his sandal. John gives us so many valuable things on how to be able to live life, to point people to Jesus, but also the perspective of Jesus and also the perspective of himself. This was the job of a servant. If you came into someone's house, they'd take off your sandals and they'd wash your feet. And what John is saying is, I'm not even worthy to do the smallest act of service unto Jesus. And if we can keep that perspective, I'm not even worthy to serve a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. I'm not even worthy to take out trash in Jesus' name. I'm not even worthy to wash someone's feet in Jesus' name. That's how he saw himself. Verse 28, these things were done in Bethabara beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. So out in the wilderness on the other side of the Jordan just past Jericho. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I want you to try to anticipate hearing that for the very first time. Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, to most people, that phrase, the Lamb of God, is not very awesome. Because this is the day of warriors. This is the day of Rome. This is the day of generals coming in on stallions. And it's still that way to this day. If you're presenting somebody, you present them as, this is all their accomplishments, these are all the things they've done, really saying, these are all the people that they've conquered. And a lamb, I mean, a lamb's innocent, a lamb doesn't have any strength of their own, there's some humility about a, a lamb. They taste good, but you kind of feel bad eating them because they're so innocent, right? You know? And you're like, lamb? I was kind of picturing like the warrior of God. Here comes the warrior of God. Here comes the, the mighty man of, of God. And it's like, no, here comes the lamb, the lamb of God. And when Jesus comes in his second coming, he does come as the conquering king, doesn't he? He does come in his might. 
But the first time that he came, he came in humility. But for the Jews who understand the Old Testament, there's a lot to this. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we can't get into it fully because of sake of time tonight, but if you go back and study the Old Testament, it's this progressive revelation of God of the redemption where God is going to send a lamb to take away sin. So you have all of these lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament. They could never take away sin. And it's only Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross and his blood being spilled that our sins could be taken away. But this is the greatest act of courage that it could ever be done, that Jesus would sacrifice his life upon the cross so that we could sit here tonight forgiven people. The sins we did yesterday, earlier today, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, the sin we'll commit in the future, it's been taken away. It's been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. Verse 30, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who's preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. So John said, I didn't know that this was the Christ until I saw this evidence of the spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove and notice that the dove remained upon Jesus. The spirit isn't a dove, it's like a dove, but the power of the spirit abode upon Christ and was the power for Christ as he lived his his earthly life. One of the things that's interesting about Christ's life as you study it closely, in Philippians 2, it tells us that he emptied himself. I believe Kent taught on that passage while I I was gone. And it doesn't mean that Christ stopped being God, but he chose to not rely upon his deity. And he lived out this life as a man who was empowered by the Holy Spirit to give us an example of what a life could look like filled with the Spirit of God. So sometimes people look at the life of Christ and they go, I could never live like that because he's God. But what Christ was showing us is this is a way you can live through the power of the Holy Spirit to the point where he said to the disciples, you're going to do greater works than me. That's intense when you think about it. All the great works that Jesus did, then he looks at the disciples and say, you're going to do greater works? How could that be? But through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit remained upon him. In verse 33, I didn't know him, but him who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So God had spoken to John. The one that you see the Spirit remaining upon is the Messiah who's going to baptize people in the Spirit. Christ is the one who immerses us into the Spirit. So John's doing this baptism of repentance, but Jesus is taking us into the Spirit. I love the second half of this chapter because we see God just reaching people. God in human flesh touching people's lives. And again, the next day, John stood with the two of his disciples. So this is John the Baptist, and he's got two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, church, please grasp this and pay attention on this point. Is This is how people are one for Jesus Christ. When we think about 
the great commission, which means to go out and make disciples. How do you do that? Well, you do life with people. You get involved in people's lives, the people that God's placed around you. John's standing with these two young men who are his disciples, his protege, and they see Jesus walking. And instead of John just keeping quiet, he sees a teachable opportunity. And he said it to the masses, but now he speaks to the two guys. He says, look, there's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And as those two guys grasped who Jesus is and his mission, they left John the Baptist to follow Jesus Christ. So with our kids, we want to talk about Jesus as much as possible and specifically his sacrifice upon the cross. A lot of times we emphasize the life that we're supposed to live as Christians with our kids, and that's good, but we want them to first and foremost know the gospel and what God has has done for them. So isn't Jesus wonderful? Isn't he good? Isn't it amazing that he's died for our sins, that he would forgive us even when we mess up? And we're, we're saying, behold the Lamb of God. You know, we're, we're talking with unbelievers. Sometimes it's just fun to talk to them like they're believers. A lot of times they want to genuinely know what's going on in your life. And, oh, you know what? I just found myself rejoicing today that my sins were forgiven. You know, what, what is that? It's talking about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus is attractive. And these two young men want to follow Christ. Verse 38, Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? Great question from Jesus. There's always so much to what Jesus is saying. Isn't that the question that Jesus poses to all of us? Hey, what are you after tonight? Think about it for just a moment. What is it that you're really after? What is it that you want? More money, a relationship, more stuff, you know? Or is it Jesus? Is it the kingdom of God? And seeking after God and longing for God. They said to him, Rabbi, which is to be translated teacher, where are you staying? And I think this is just kind of like, I don't really know what he's asking, so I'm just going to ask him where he's staying tonight. And I don't think they really got what Jesus was saying. And, and he's like, are you at the Motel 6 or the Motel 8 or the Hilton? Like, where, just, where are you staying tonight? Then he said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying, remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Christ's words, hey, come along. Just, if you want to know where I'm staying, then come with me. And by doing this, Jesus was going to reveal the glory of God. Again, I think this is one of the best ways to share Christ with others. Hey, you want to know about Christ? Hey, just come and see. And let's spend some time in the Word together. Let's spend time praying together. Let's spend time loving people together. That's the way Jesus discipled. That's the way Paul discipled. I had a chance to go to Bible college and the school of ministry but the best training I ever got was when all of that was done, a pastor by the name of Rich Wright in Nampa, Idaho, a small church there. And I got done with my schooling and I thought I was pretty hot stuff. And he basically said, hey, why don't you just come and see? He says, I'll treat you like a son and you can come and serve in our church. So I waited tables and served at Calvary Chapel, Nampa. And that was the best training that I ever saw by just seeing the way that he loved God and the way that he loved people. And Jesus lets these two guys into his inner circle, says, why don't you just come and see? In verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He, was first, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. 
This is it. This is outreach right here. It's not conjuring up something. It's not trying to get excited about Jesus. It's genuinely being infected by who Christ is and his love, where you're so stinking excited about him, you can't help but tell the people you love about Jesus. And Andrew, he's found the Messiah, the one prophesied in the Old Testament. So the first thing that he's going to do is he's going to go tell his brother, because they're close. They've grown up together. And he wants this good news to be experienced by his brother. And we think about the impact that Peter had. His first sermon, 3,000 people get saved. And who was the one that introduced him to Christ? It was Andrew. Not everybody's going to be a Peter. Maybe you're an Andrew. Maybe you're really good at the one-on-one stuff. We hardly hear anything of Andrew throughout the Gospels, but he introduces Peter to Jesus Christ. Who entered Billy Graham? Introduced Billy Graham to Jesus Christ. You know, who entered Greg, Greg Glory? Introduced Greg Glory to Jesus Christ. You know, be that Andrew. This is what I've experienced about Jesus, and I'm introducing someone else to Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. God has a way of changing our name, which is our identity. He did it several times in scripture. Saul to Paul. We look at Jacob, his name being changed to Israel. It was a work that he was doing in their character. And God looks at Simon, which means sifting sand, and he says, your name's going to be Cephas or Peter, which means stone. Peter had that tendency to go wayward and be that sand that goes back and forth, but God made him into a strong stone. Verse 43, the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. And we don't have the details of how Jesus found Philip, but he did. He wanted Jesus to, Philip to be a follower, and the simple instructions, just follow me. Never make the Christian life complicated. It's very simple. Follow Jesus. Get in the direction he's going. What's he about? Who is he in his word? What does he command us to do? And then put those instructions into practice. We get in trouble when we get away from that. Verse 44, now Philip was from Bethsaida, this beautiful city on the Sea of Galilee, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we've found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. He's saying we've found the Messiah too. He's got to go tell his friend Nathanael. In verse 46, and Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Pueblo? I mean, Nazareth. <laughs> There's a lot of good things that come out of Pueblo. But. Philip said to him, come and see. Where did the world, did Philip learn this come and see tactic from Jesus? So now he's using it on Nathanael and use it on others. You're sharing with someone who doesn't know Christ. You say, hey, why don't you just come to church with me and check it out. I guarantee the church building's not going to burn down when you come through the door, you know. Just come hang out with me. We're hanging out with some, some Christian friends. Why don't you just come and see? We actually have a really good time, and we don't start puking the next morning because we got drunk, you know. It's like a lot of people's perception of Christians is totally different. And just say, hey, come and see. We don't, we're at my church. We don't handle snakes or do anything like that. Just come see. Come, come check it out. Verse 47. 
Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. So he nails his character. He knows that he's a man of character and honesty, and Jesus knows us, and he's able to read us perfectly. In verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There's those times where God lets us know, hey, I know everything about you. And it floors us and causes us to just buckle under the love of God and say, God, I want to follow you. And Nathaniel's blown away that Jesus saw him and knew that he was hanging out under the fig tree. And God says, hey, this is just the beginning of it. You're going to see the, the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jacob, as he was fleeing from his brother Esau, when saw this vision of heaven, he saw angels ascending and, and descending from heaven. So that's John chapter 1. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to go through John chapter 2. Jesus takes a little trip to a wedding. So read ahead, study with me uh, throughout the week, and we'll come together and we'll study John chapter 2. So will you stand with me and let's pray together.